Now, last Sunday, I made some brief remarks in answer to the question that sometimes as pastors we get how we choose a particular text for a sermon. Now, when you're doing an exposition like Pastor Brad has been doing in 2 Timothy, it's easy to know what the next sermon is because if you ended at verse 8, you pick up with verse 9 and you just keep moving through. But as I've given messages the last couple of weeks, of course, I'm just taking individual texts and I assured you it was not by this method, but there's other things that go into our prayer and our consideration. And the text I've chosen for our message this morning is found in 1 Peter, a very small little paragraph in 1 Peter chapter 5. So if you would please turn there, and I've learned to say as an old-timer, or click there, 1 Peter chapter 5. And there is a reason why I think my heart and mind was drawn to this text, and it's because of what we did the last couple of Sundays. Uh, if you were here on the first uh, day of the year, on January the 1st, uh, we had all the elders come up on the stage here, and we laid hands on a man who's joining the elder board, and then we laid hands on three deacons that were being added to the deacon committee. And January the 8th, last Sunday, uh, we looked at a text concerning the principle of discipleship. And that if Christians are going to mature, and if they're going to be a part of a healthy congregation, a healthy church, then discipleship needs to be taking place, which means there needs to be disciplers who are helping to disciple others, even as the leaders do it often from the front, but also in a more personal one-on-one -on -one way in the life of the church. And so to have a, a Christ-centered, Word-centered, Spirit-led congregation, there is a vital biblical principle that cannot be ignored. And this biblical principle, this truth, is clearly set forth in both the Old and New Testaments. One such expression we find from the prophet Hosea, who touches on this vital principle. In Hosea 4, we read, and it will be like people, like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. And Jeremiah echoes something along that line in Jeremiah 5 when he says, The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority, and my people love it so. See, both of those brief texts bring to our mind the principle that for the health spiritually of a, a group of people, a congregation, a local church, there have to be those who are leading correctly and those who are responding and following correctly. But it starts at the top. As goes the priest, so go the people. It is an all-embracing fact that capable leaders are essential for the proper and successful functioning of any endeavor, whether it's in the arenas of business or government or the military or athletics, and yes, in the local church. What we witnessed on January 1st with our elders standing up here represents part of the blueprint that God has given for the local church. Now, I know that we are all familiar with the fact that the New Testament has a good bit to say about the qualifications for elders, 
Uh, Pastor Brad took us through 1 Timothy before we got into 2 Timothy, and of course, 1 Timothy 3, as well as Titus uh, chapter 1, gives us very specific qualifications that pertain uh, to those who would be qualified to be elders, and Brad took us through those texts last summer. I'm going to confine our time this morning to a brief paragraph penned by the Apostle Peter where he addresses the duties and the motives of someone who would be an elder in the local church. And before addressing the duties, notice that I have on the outline, pastor slash elder. Now, we must remember that elders, as they are described in the early church, find its roots within Judaism. Going all the way back to the time of Moses in Numbers 11, he appointed elders to help oversee the mass of people that were going out on the exodus. And it became a permanent feature of Jewish life. Uh, every Jewish village and town had elders who met in the city gate and decided things about the welfare and even uh, dealing with civil matters. Uh, there were elders who served as administrators in the synagogue. They didn't carry on priestly duties, but they were elders in the synagogue who gave spiritual oversight. And when we get to the first century in the days of Jesus, I mean, the elders were a very prominent part of Jewish life. In fact, they formed a large segment of the Sanhedrin. And maybe you've not noticed this because typically it's not capitalized, but whenever we see chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, it's usually with a capital. But if you'll notice, maybe it's escaped your notice, if you go back and look at those texts, it always says, and elders. For example, when the crowd came into Gethsemane to arrest Jesus, it says, one of the twelve came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And so we find that repeatedly in the gospel accounts. But the point that I want to make about elders is that elders and pastors are synonymous terms with each other, and I'll demonstrate that in just a couple of moments from the Scriptures. But uh, pastors are elders, and elders do pastoring. Now, there is a distinction, especially in the modern church, about the role of pastor in relationship to elder, but I will address that in just a, just a few moments. These three terms, there are three terms that are synonymous, and Peter actually touches on them in these five verses. Let me read them to you. Peter writes, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble." 
The three terms that are really interchangeable in the New Testament, the first one is the term shepherd, which he uses as a verb there, to shepherd the flock of God. Obviously, one who tends a flock of animals, sheep, frequently in the New Testament. The second term is one that's often just translated as elder. And in this case, Peter uses the word presbyteros. The only reason I mention the Greek word because you can make the connection with the English word Presbyterian comes from uh, that word. And <clears throat> the feminine form of it is in that passage we read in Titus last week about older women. Because actually the term elder, its most basic meaning is just an older man. And then, of course, it sort of morphs into describing an older man that is a mature man. And I hope I qualify, well, I qualify for one for sure. I'm the older man at this stage, but also hopefully a mature man uh, as well. And so it's used of spiritually mature men and leaders, uh, similar to the roots that it had in the synagogue. And the other term, again, I'm going to mention the Greek word because you'll recognize the English equivalent, episkopos, where we get our word episcopal or episcopalian. And that means an overseer or a guardian, and sometimes it's translated as bishop. Why two titles, such as elder and bishop? Well, I suspect it's because elder is more Jewish, describing what they are. The term bishop, coming from Greek, is focusing more on what they do. But make no mistake about it, all of them, all three of them, are all one and the same office. And that is no more clearly demonstrated than in Acts chapter 20. I won't have you turn there just now, but I think most of you, if not all of you, will remember the context. Paul is traveling, and he has come near the city of Ephesus. He's not going to Ephesus, but he wants to have a last visit with the elders of that church. And so that paragraph begins with, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church, Presbyteros. And he begins to give them uh, exhortation about their responsibilities and their roles as elders, and he tells them he will probably not see their face again, and they have a very tearful uh, goodbye with each other. But then also we find near the end of his exhortation, he says this, still addressing that same group of elders from Miletus, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Episcopos, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And we find the same thing repeated uh, when Paul is writing to Titus, and he says, I left you in Crete for this reason, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city, for the overseer must be above reproach. So he goes on to describe the qualifications, but he refers to them both as overseers and elders. And then, of course, that term pastor is lumped right in there with those other two. And it was Paul's strategy that when he planted churches that he appointed elders. Uh, elders participated in the Jerusalem council alongside the apostles. Uh, when Paul made his final visit to Jerusalem, uh, he met with James and the elders but turning our attention from the precedent in the New Testament, let's, let's look at these two duties that are set forth here from the apostle. 
uh, for elders. The first, as it says at the beginning of verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. And we've all heard sermons, so I'm not going to regale you with the whole list of shepherd responsibilities. Uh, you've heard sermons on Psalm 23 and, and others, but uh, just recall that the shepherd was anything but passive in overseeing the sheep. Obviously, he led them to places to eat. He provided protection for them from robbers or dangerous animals. Uh, at the close of a day, a, a good shepherd would actually try to check over all the sheep as he was gathering them in the pen uh, for nighttime. And if there were any that were uh, made lame, he would pick them up and carry them back and try to nurse them uh, back to health. And then, of course, at times, he had a staff for a reason. It was not only to rescue, but sometimes to kind of bang them into line. But shepherding... What does that mean as we take the metaphor of a shepherd with a sheep to how elders relate to brothers and sisters in the congregation? Well, it certainly involves instruction and teaching, uh, guarding sound doctrine. Uh, elders give guidance and oversight and maintain church order and the ministries under our oversight. Uh, shepherding involves encouraging discipleship. It involves praying for the congregation as well as teaching them how to pray. Elders are called upon to lay hands for physical healing, according to the teaching in James chapter 5. At times, it's, it's painful for all involved, but at times the elders exercise discipline when there is a member who is habitually sinning without repentance they cannot continue to function as a normal part of the body if they're going to pursue a lifestyle that contradicts how a Christian is supposed to live. And then, of course, shepherds and particularly pastors amongst the shepherds pray and dedicate babies. Uh, we perform weddings. We officiate funerals. Or as one English pastor who's been a good friend of mine, he referred to the baby dedications, wedding, and funerals as hatches, matches, and dispatches. But, but basically what we're talking about is soul care. It's caring for people's soul is what shepherding the church is about. When you come to the end of the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, the writer makes that very point when he says... Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. This is such a rich concept. Uh, in fact, I find myself perplexed, if not irritated, with a pastor who, I don't know if it's still the case, but for a good number of years, he has the largest multi-site church in the country and he's piped in via video uh, to these congregations uh, spread around the country. And some years ago, when he was being interviewed by a leading Christian periodical, he was asked a question which really caused quite a stir amongst evangelical Christians. And the question he was asked is, should we stop referring to pastors or elders as shepherds? And his answer was, absolutely. 
He says that concept is irrelevant in the modern-day world. He went on to say, I've never seen a flock. I've never spent five minutes with a shepherd. It's culturally relevant in the time of Jesus, but it's not culturally relevant anymore. And of course, he goes on to defend the pastor as a CEO model rather than a shepherd model, and I think that's a terrible mistake. I don't know why you have to see a shepherd. or I mean, I've never been amongst sheep. I don't think I've ever personally met a shepherd, but I get the point. I mean, we can understand what shepherds did. All we can do is just do a little reading. I also wonder, I don't, I got to get off this rabbit trail, but if, if the modern mind, according to this pastor, cannot relate to the shepherd model as it relates to pastors leading people, then what does, should we apply that to Jesus as the chief shepherd as well? Are we at loss to know that Jesus is our chief shepherd because our modern day, we don't know how shepherds behave supposedly? Of course not. I think it's, I think it's a very unhealthy teaching, and that's the kindest way I can put it. You know, did I mention, and I, and I like the, the tenderness this brings to the concept of shepherding people. I can't stand the CEO model, if you can't tell. But the shepherd's activity included, I said, checking on the sheep and their well-being, but if they had bruises or wounds, they used healing oil on them, and they also tried to pick all the briars out of their wool. So there's this very tender side to the shepherding metaphor that we are given. So I said there were two duties. First is the shepherding the flock, but second, it's setting an example for the congregation. Now let me be quick to say, a person need not be perfect to set a good example, because if that were the case, none of us could be example to, to anyone else, including elders or pastors. There is no man that perfectly fulfills all the qualifications that are listed in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. But this is my understanding. Those qualities that are listed in 1 Timothy 3, and I, we're not taking the time to reread those this morning, they must be demonstrably present in a man's life and the trajectory of his life must reflect that these qualities are ever-increasing, that he is growing in them. A little earlier in that last chapter of Hebrews, I cited one verse, but a few verses earlier, he said this about the leaders. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Last week we were talking about everyone influences someone else and we're all influenced by others. Well, here the writer to the Hebrews is saying that we should imitate the faith of our leaders and leaders should set an example as he says here in these verses in 1 Peter chapter 5. The word for Imitate is the word where we get our English word mimic. That there should be things we are seeing in our brothers and sisters in Christ, and especially in our pastors and elders, 
that uh, provoke us and spur us on to emulate them with the important caveat that when Paul asked people to imitate him, and I think I quoted this last week, but it bears repeating, Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So to the extent that someone is living Christ-like in those things, we do want to try and emulate them. And elders are given the task of being sure that we are setting that example. And as important as these two duties are, shepherding and setting an example, it's also important that an elder or a pastor possess the right motivation, the right motivation for functioning as a pastor or an elder. That is, elders are to have a shepherd's heart. And he says, with eagerness. Did you see that at the end of verse 2? They're to desire it with eagerness. That is, willingly, freely, heartily, cheerfully. And then he adds, voluntarily, according to the will of God. Eagerness and voluntarily, here in these verses, are juxtaposed or contrasted with motives that should not be present. There's certain things that should be absent in someone's motivation to serve in leadership in this way. And he mentions three of them. The first is that it shouldn't be a task or an office that is taken under compulsion. That is, we should not have to be twisting someone's arm to coerce them to accept becoming an elder. Uh, there are, in some churches, uh, at times, a desperate need for leaders, and they often don't have many people who are volunteering. And so they may lean on someone who will begrudgingly say, almost as if to say, well, I guess someone's got to do it. That's not the attitude you want to have when you're stepping in to a position of spiritual leadership in the church. And of course, there are some that see it almost as an unpleasant or a grim duty to take on. Last spring, uh, my older son, our older son who lives in um, Brazil and has been very involved in a Presbyterian church there, he was approached uh, by leaders last spring uh, about what he consider being an elder in the church. And he was sharing this with another man in the church who had served many, many years on the elder board. And this man said to him, oh, I feel sorry for you. I mean, what a strange remark to make, because I've been to this church. It's not like a problem-ridden church. It's a fairly healthy, good church with good Bible teaching. But for some reason, this man saw it as a, as a burden, and um, he actually felt sorry for my son that he would be asked. Secondly, not for sordid gain. ESV says shameful gain. NIV says dishonest gain. I wouldn't use it because it doesn't connect today, but I love the sound of it. King James Version says filthy lucre. I mean, you can't just say filthy lucre. You have to say filthy lucre. It just kind of makes you notice how rotten it is. Obviously, he's talking there that there cannot be this motive of profit, that somehow there's going to be 
a financial profit for me if I step into this position of responsibility. And in a practical way that I apply that principle, and I say to all of you that make up this congregation, uh, we should never see our fellow believers through a lens of being potential customers. Something that would generate personal profit, in this case, to the elder, because of whatever his vocation is. Uh, for example, realtors, uh, insurance agents, uh, someone wanting to network in business, builders. Now, don't misunderstand. I mean, if a builder is in our church, and I'll use that example because I don't know of any builders. But if there's a builder in our church, and you've heard they're a builder, and you approach them, great. But if he's here passing out his business cards, that's something different. That you cannot have that as a motive for being an elder, and it must have been going on, or Peter wouldn't have addressed it to make sure that is absent. The third thing he mentions is not lording it over people. Of course, we know lording it over someone, as the ESV handles it, is being domineering. And it's meaning to be heavy-handed or bossy or dictatorial. And some pastors and some elders by personality have to really guard against this because some people like being boss. Some people like being the head honcho. And it's not that we don't welcome the opportunity in a good sense to serve and to lead, but when it's, when it's uh, rooted in the fact that you want to be in control, uh, that's dangerous. True story. Back when uh, I became a Christian uh, in the late 60s on into the 70s, there was a, a Bible teacher of a fairly well-known church back then in Texas. And the pastor of the church uh, was a very um, strong leader and um, an expository Bible teacher, but very authoritarian. I knew people who had attended the church. Uh, on one Sunday, a friend of mine was there, and let's just say if I glanced over and I saw Ed whisper something to Ellen in a moment, he would have stopped and said, you, leave. If you're going to talk while I'm talking, leave. And this was kind of the personality of this guy. When he was called to the church, and I can't remember how big it was, but I think they had like 15 or 18 elders. And apparently, when they called him, the elders voted, but they were not unanimous. And at his first elder meeting, he said, I understand that uh, some of you, a few of you did not vote for me to come. I think we need to be men and just kind of step up and identify yourselves if you voted against me. I can't remember the number. Three or four men raised their hands. He said, I expect your resignations by the end of the day. Well, you know, for some reason, that guy comes to mind when I read, not lording it over those allotted to your charge. I think you're, you're getting the, the sense of what this is about, because elders are to lead by example, and that example includes humility. It includes uh, a spirit of uh, a servant's heart. And this is, you know, this is a balance, speaking for myself as a pastor, it's a balance for all of us in leadership. Because on the one hand, Paul says to Timothy, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. 
So it's a good thing to have a heart that I would like to one day be an elder and help shepherd God's people and care for the church. But then Paul also says, make sure they're not a new convert so he won't become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And so you've got the the continuum there where it's a good thing to do, but if you want it so badly that you're just not going to be satisfied unless you're one of the ones up front, and then on the other hand, there is the danger of ego, uh, of course. So there should be uh, a desire to, and this is the most prominent motivation of all, and it should be the motivation of every Christian, frankly. And that is to please the Lord. He says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. As elders and pastors, we are to see ourselves as under shepherds, under the shepherding of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are merely stewards in God's household. In fact, he says in verse 2, according to the will of God, or as God would have it, some translations have. But that verse I read from Hebrews 13 a moment ago, remember it said, they will give an account. And every one of us who is in pastoral ministry or people who serve as elders in a local church will give account to the Lord Jesus Christ for how we conduct ourselves in that office. The balance is also reflected in the fact between not being too heavy-handed and the other hand, it's, it's good to want to do it. You'll notice he said in verse 1 that the elder is on one hand among them. Verse 1, exhort the elders among you. So an elder is one of the congregation. You know, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. But on the other hand, in verse 3, he refers to elders as being those who are over those allotted to their charge. So yes, the elders are among us, but they are also over us according to God's assignment. There's no question that pastors and elders are to exercise authority. The elders are the very gatekeepers of those who join the church. We're the ones that sit and listen to their testimonies, your testimonies and to hear that you are trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you are doctrinally in sympathy with where we stand on biblical truth. But both the sheep and the shepherds must understand the necessity of both roles. The way that Hebrew 13 verse reads, which is verse 17, it adds another important point that I've not commented on. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul adds this comment, We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, live in peace with one another. 
I noticed in this text, as well as the Hebrew 13 verse 17 text, that both statements include the idea that there needs to be peace and harmony between the leaders and those in the congregation. And that ultimately it would be a grief for us and we'd be all be robbed of joy if for whatever reason there were those in the congregation that were pushing back, resisting, or even renouncing the leadership and the shepherding of the elders. Now, if any of you are visiting, we've not had this dilemma in the history of our church. I'm not speaking from any immediate concern at the chapel, but hey, I've been doing this for 44 years, and so you know, it can happen from time to time that uh, the harmony is not there. You know, it's also interesting, while he's talking about this, in verse 5, did you notice he turns his attention to younger men in particular? You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And why did he pick on them in particular? Now, he broadens it in the next part of the, of the verse. Uh, but I suppose and I suspect that when I think about young men in general and thinking back way, way back when I was a young man, that young men can have a tendency to be perhaps overly aggressive, uh, passionate, impulsive, uh, full of themselves, uh, at times even impertinent. And uh, perhaps Peter had those things in mind when he said younger men, but he just didn't leave it there. Then he broadened it and he said, uh, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility uh, toward one another. So there is to, to be a humility there. You know, speaking of humility, I'm going to uh, compliment our pastor in, in front of you all. Because, uh, Brad, you demonstrated humility um, one t no, more than once. Uh, one, time, one time stands out. Uh, for some of you who have not been with us since the beginning, when we uh, planted the church 12 years ago, um, when we came up uh, on about uh, five years, the elders and I were praying and decided we need to hire an associate pastor to come on board with the intention of him eventually becoming the senior pastor and me stepping aside. And the Lord led in some wonderful ways, and so Brad came on board in 2015. But one of the understandings we had, and we made this very clear to him, that I was going to remain the senior pastor for three to five years. And then at the longest, at the end of five years, I would step down, and then the congregation would vote on him becoming senior pastor. And he was quite uh, agreeable to that. And then about two years uh, into it, I mentioned that I was sensing that it was probably going to be closer to three than five. And then Brad um, said to me, you know what, even if you wanted to extend it to seven, I'm willing to just do what you want to do. Now, I don't know how that strikes you, but this is a guy who had already been preaching in a pulpit in another town before he came to us for six years. So he's used to preaching every Sunday. He comes on board with us and preaches on occasion, and, and he's a guy who loves to preach, and so it was somewhat of a, a compromise for him to take this role here. But do you see the humility in saying, even if you want seven years, he was going to wait.
that was a gift to me and also a good reminder to me about how any of us approach ministry and spiritual leadership. You know, sometimes we can become very territorial. And, what, and I didn't want to be the guy, like so many of my colleagues in my generation, who just don't know when it's time to let go. I remember I was at a, at a pastor's conference, and a guy was talking to us about retirement and insurance in one of these sessions. It was boring as all get out. But anyway, he was talking about, but one thing got my notice. He said, I know a lot of you guys want to preach till you're 90 and you die in the pulpit, but the problem is going to be finding a church that's willing to pay you to do it. <laughs> and so, um, but I, I just wanted to be sensitive for the Lord about what does the church need, where are we going, and I decided, you know, at that point, and the elders agreed with me. And then in 2018, it'll be five years ago this May 1st, <laughs> Brad uh, became the senior pastor. And so, but his disposition on that is maybe um, something you were not aware of, uh, the elders were, but I, I think you all should know that about your pastor. Now, most of what I have said so far has focused on these reciprocal responsibilities of pastors and elders. But some clarification is in order when it comes to understanding what differences or distinctives are there between the pastor and an elder. And I have identified four. Maybe there's seven, maybe there's three, but I've identified four. One, the pastor as an elder in the church has a calling to this shepherding ministry as a vocation. It is his livelihood as well as his ministry. That is, he puts food on the table and pays the house for his family to live in by the money that is paid by the church, whereas most elders that we call lay elders uh, have their own occupations and vocations that they pursue, and then they give of their time and gifts and talents to the church serving as an elder. Uh, second distinctive, and this is not always true across the board, but most of the time the pastor has had formal theological training, including knowledge of biblical languages, to an extent that probably most lay elders have not had. So just his, as they say, toolbox, his skill set is going to be something unique compared to elders in general. Uh, something else, a third thing, is that as pastors, we are part of the elder board. And Pastor Brad has one vote like every other elder. But there is what I think is a healthy deference among equals or first among equals. You know, Paul even distinguished amongst the elders when he said, elders who rule well, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And so it seems like amongst the eldership that are overseeing and ruling that he kind of sections out those who work hard at preaching and teaching for kind of special uh, notice. And so it doesn't mean that the pastor needs to be the one who gets all the elders to be a yes man to what he wants, but all the elders do want to lean in and they want to know what he thinks, really know what he thinks about any decision or direction the church is going to take. And then there's an additional distinctive that I think is true of the pastor that is not in the same way true of elders, and not to any fault of the elders. There is a burden that Paul describes, and would you please turn with me so you see these words yourself 
Let me just not read them to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11. I think you'll recognize it. Paul is um, uh, defending himself, as he so often had to do. And he gives a whole glossary here of experiences he's had. And he starts in verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. And far more labors and far more imprisonments beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, Dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have also been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Now, as we listen to that list of his life experiences, you can imagine why when he arrived in Corinth by his own confession, he arrived weak and trembling because these things take a toll. But with all of those things he's mentioned, look what he adds in verse 28 that he puts in the same category as these hardships. Verse 28, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for the churches. That's, I mean, to me, the first time I read that uh, many years ago, I was startled that with all of those other things, the daily pressure he encountered because of his concern for all the churches. And the word he uses for concern means an anxious interest or even anxiety. In fact, it's the same exact word that Peter uses a few verses later in 1 Peter 5 and verse 7 when he says, casting all your anxiety on him, marimna. And so he had this anxious concern for the church. Elders share that concern to some degree, but in my experience and in my observation for what it's worth, no one carries the burden on his shoulders as much as the senior pastor. The Barna Survey Group, which is probably the most thorough and uh, trustworthy survey organization that tries to keep its finger on the pulse of religion in America, I don't know how many it was, hundreds, maybe even a few thousand, they interviewed pastors in 2020 to 2021 in America. And then one of the questions on the survey was, in the last year, 
have you given real serious consideration to quitting full-time ministry? In January of 21, 29% said yes. March of 22, 42% said yes. That in the last year, they had given serious consideration to leaving full-time ministry. And it's a long survey. I'm going to just throw one other fact at you. They asked for the top reasons in order. The top three reasons, the first one was stress, the second was loneliness, and the third was political division. And then when they scratched beneath the surface on that, the word COVID kept coming up. That the amount of uh, division within congregations over how it was handled, the, vaccine, the whole thing that's been percolating in our country now ever since this thing broke, um, was causing them such angst that it was getting them to the point of being just so uh, discouraged uh, and, and frustrated. Now, <clears throat> now, any pastor who is in a healthy situation would be quick to say that especially as you look at the, the long view, that the joys and the blessings and the reward far outweigh the burdensome part of ministry, far outweigh. But even as you know personally in your own walk with Christ, when you happen to be in the dark place for the moment, that can be pretty fatiguing and pretty, uh, pretty discouraging as well as exhausting. I know from personal experience, I, I said in 2018 I stepped aside as senior pastor. Um, Brad and the elders uh, decided uh, that it would still be helpful to the chapel if I stayed on staff half-time. The reason I'm injecting this is that even in the last year, I've had some of you ask, now, so you're retired now? And that's not quite accurate, and I'm thinking if people at the chapel don't even quite clearly understand what I'm doing, I want you to know. Um, so I am half-time with the title Pastor Emeritus, and what does half-time look like? Um, I, I'm still figuring that out, but uh, what I have done so far is I have decided to be on tap for the church four days a week and to take off three days a week. And I've had people uh, in my life as I approach this new season of stepping aside a senior pastor who have encouraged me over and over Richard, you can take your foot off the pedal. You can let up on the gas. You know, you really should take a little more relaxing free time. And, um, and that's hard to do beyond a regular vacation when you've been spending 40 years, <laughs> you know, trying to go full steam ahead. And so, <clears throat> anyway, so that is my role. And um, one of my chief aims is to be of whatever help I can be to Brad, uh, as an associate pastor, uh, to help in all the pastoral duties, everything from um, counseling uh, to preaching uh, when uh, need be, when he would like me to. Uh, I do pretty much oversee the adult Bible class at 9 o'clock. I teach it most of the time myself or bring in other men, uh, as Tom Burkett came in this morning and taught it. Uh, I'm, I'm quite invested in administration here at the chapel. Uh, in some churches that are larger, they have what's called an executive pastor. I'm kind of a mini-executive pastor when it comes to these administrative roles. 
Uh, I sit with the elder board in all their meetings, but I do not vote. I sit with the deacon committee in their meetings, but I'm just there as a liaison to make sure communication between elders and deacons is free-flowing, but I don't vote with that group either. Uh, I still am the chairman of Project Hungary, one of the missions that we support. And the other thing that is still very important to me in this new role that I have is being a pastor to pastors, especially trying to encourage and come alongside younger pastors as the Lord opens up doors uh, for opportunity. So probably for three years now, uh, a church I planted in Ocala many years ago uh, had a new pastor come, a younger guy, and um, he didn't even make it through the end of his first year. Then they had a newborn son who died and uh, went through that. And so I go down and meet with him from time to time and just to uh, encourage him uh, in the ministry. Uh, I also try to be available that if some of these smaller churches, that if for whatever reason they lose their pastor and they need someone to fill in, but there's no one within the church that can do it, uh, I'd, I'd like to be available to do that, and I feel like I have the permission of the elders to step away. So if you don't see me here on a Sunday, like uh, last summer, for example, um, or summer before last in 21, there's a little church over uh, just uh, over in... Um, near uh, Main Street, or near, uh, what's the name of that park? Westside Park. Uh, there's a little church there with about 30 people, and they had a retired missionary as their pastor, and he just had a health crisis and couldn't even preach the next Sunday. Another pastor who was retired asked if he and I could sort of um, play tag and go in, so I preached for them four times until they finally got another pastor. And then most recently, and I want to tell you about this because this has been a, a tremendous encouragement to me. Actually, it was probably this Sunday a year ago. We were visiting good friends over in the Panhandle. Just went over for the weekend over in Carabelle, and we went to church with them. And they go to this small community church, which probably on their very, very, very best Sunday have 70 people. And this younger pastor got up, and he just preached a fantastic message from the Word. It was expositional and just faithful to the text. And I was talking with him afterward, and I was commending him on the message. And anyway, in talking to our friends and in talking to him, he's supposed to be getting off one Sunday every three months. But often he can't do it because there's not a single man in the church who is equipped to stand up and ever fill the pulpit for him. Then I find out that not only was he preaching in this little church, that the two hours before that same morning, he had gone to another small community and preached to a church of 40 people. He preaches there and then gets in the car and drives 20 miles to the second place. And so I told him, and I should, we're okay. Uh, at least I think so. <laughs> um, <clears throat> this guy is probably now 44 years old. And his story is unbelievable. He grew up uh, not south of Tallahassee, uh, was offered a full baseball scholarship, University of Miami, which he turned down, ended up on the football team at FSU. And uh, in his senior year, uh, I think fell in with a wrong crowd of people. And I don't know all the details, but he was a participant in an armed robbery. He was sentenced to 17 and a half years in prison. 
He had just been released from prison, prison five or six years before we met him. And when he arrived at the collection place where all these hundreds of men are in this huge room and they're giving him their cell assignments, uh, he said it was just, how can you explain it, except the Lord just working in a marvelous way. This large African-American guy crossed that room of hundreds of people, made a beeline for him and said, can I talk to you for 10 minutes? And he said, no, because he was pretty bitter at that point. He said, no, just five minutes, just five minutes. Well, he finally consented, and to really shorten this, whatever that guy said to him and whatever scriptures he shared with him, it prompted this pastor to be on his knees that night in his cell trusting Christ. And he uh, began to devour the Bible. Somebody, a chaplain, told him about Bible courses through Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. So through postal mail, he started taking classes and reading the lectures and taking the exams. And he completed, I think he took probably every class they had. And he got the Bible certificate degree from Moody. And one prison, because they moved him around some, one chaplain and the warden could see that he was having such an effect on leading Bible studies. They actually cleaned out a janitorial closet and gave it to him as a study. Before he went to prison, he had learned the trade of laying bricks for some reason. And so when he got out, uh, he started laying bricks, uh, started his own company, now, this is all within the last, last six years, and today he has a crew of 19 men working for him and just uh, opened up a showroom, and he continues to preach at both of these little churches every Sunday. Uh, a chaplain told both the churches who didn't have pastors, this guy's good, you really should get him, and so he does that. When I was talking with him that first Sunday after the service, I'm thinking, you know, you're going to burn out. I mean, how can you be running? Oh, and plus he got married and he has two little kids now. Now there's really gotten a lot of responsibility. But, um, you know, I was afraid, you know, I said, you know, you're going you're gonna to burn out. He goes, well, the Lord just keeps giving me the energy. And I said, but you need to be taking these Sundays off. I will drive from Gainesville and, and fill both of those uh, pulpits on Sunday morning if it'll help you to get away. So last year in 2022, I went over four different times throughout the year. And so, again, I'm just, if I'm not here, I may be very well doing something like that or just sleeping in at home. <laughs> not really. <laughs> you know, Chuck Swindoll said something a long time ago, and when I'm seeing this uh, Barna survey about uh, uh, stress and stuff on the pastorate, uh, Swindoll says, sometimes I run into people who say, well, I'd rather burn out than rust out. And Swindoll says, either way, you're out. And so that's very practical, uh, practical advice. So I'll continue in this role as I'm able or until Brad and the elders decide that maybe a different direction needs to be taken. And I would remind you all of this as, as you think about Brad and view him as our pastor. Uh, don't deny or ignore that he is human and has flaws like the rest of us. Brad's not a spiritual superhero. 
any more than I am or any one of us is. Uh, don't expect that he has all the gifts. No pastor does. Affirm his gifts. Express appreciation. Pray for him, especially as he labors in the Word to feed us each week. I'm grateful in this last chapter of my pastoral life to be serving uh, with a godly pastor like Brad and with godly men like George Bose and Ed Barnard and Jack Neal and Richard White. And who am I leaving out? Oh, yeah. Lesson in humility. Joel Parker. <laughs> I think I've, I've said enough. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the pattern that is recorded for us in the New Testament about the local church. And we thank you that in your divine wisdom, you established the bride of Christ in the local congregation to have spiritual leaders and teachers and deacons, elders and pastors. Lord, I pray that the chapel would continue to pray and ask you to raise up these people within our church, and may we never compromise what the qualities are that we're striving for and what we're called to not only do, but what we're called to be. And may our motives and our desires always be most to honor you with using the gifts that you have given us. We do thank you for Brad and his family. And I pray that when the discouraging days come, that your Holy Spirit would bring to his mind the scriptures that he studies and knows so well. I pray, too, that your Holy Spirit would continue to give him, through your word, what it is we need to hear to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.